Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree, and study the NCH diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. I'm Anna from the Institute of Art and Ideas, and this week we've been working on an exciting podcast for you which tackles the small question of how the universe began. We'd also like to thank our listeners who reported the technical issues we had with last week's episodes. We always love to hear from our listeners at the Institute of Art and Ideas, so please keep sharing your thoughts and comments. This week, we also have a bonus episode for you in which Angela Eagle shows us how we can achieve radical economic reform to tackle the market fundamentalism of today. To make sure you don't miss this episode and many more from Philosophy for Our Times, Please subscribe today on your favourite podcast platform, iTunes or SoundCloud. In this episode, we turn our attention to how it all began. In light of evidence that the universe is accelerating away from us, our speakers re-look at the story of creation. Taking on this mammoth task, eminent mathematician Roger Penrose, physicist and author Sean Carroll, and multiverse cosmologist Laura Massini-Horton. David Malone hosts... So the theme of the debate is um, whether the universe began, as all our children are taught in school, with a big bang. That theory really ran out over the steady state theory about 50 years ago, um, mainly because we discovered that the universe was expanding. Um, But now people are not quite so sure that they think maybe it's just accelerating away from us. So this has led to questions and people saying, well, might the whole big bang theory not be right? Do we actually have to have a beginning? So to discuss this, both our speakers will have four minutes. Sean, would you like to to start? Right. So to answer that, we first have to say what we mean by the Big Bang Theory, because this phrase is meant in two very different contexts, right? We all know the universe is expanding, so if you run the clock backwards, if you run the film uh, to the past, 14 billion years ago, it was in a hot, dense state, and we have something called the Big Bang model of cosmology, which is simply the statement that 14 billion years ago, the universe was in a hot, dense state, it expanded and cooled, and went from being very smooth to relatively lumpy, which it is right now with all these stars and galaxies and so forth. That's the Big Bang model. It is true. 
There's no <laughs> point in doubting the Big Bang model. <laughs> but if you take seriously general relativity and you say, well, what happened at the very beginning? What happens if... So we, we know exactly what the universe was doing one minute after the very beginning of the Big Bang, okay? From one minute after to 14 billion years after, we understand. That first minute is a little bit up for grabs. So uh, classical general relativity, the theory that Einstein gave us for space and time, would say, according to Roger and Stephen Hawking, that at that moment, t equals zero at the very beginning, there was a singularity. But there's also this thing called quantum mechanics, which gets in the way, which is not part of general relativity. So if you want to say the Big Bang event, the Big Bang moment, the beginning of everything, we don't know whether that is right or not. We have room as theoretical physicists and cosmologists to invent new scenarios and debate over which is right, which is wrong. And so that's where our disagreement comes in. Um, I'm pretty agnostic, to be honest, about whether or not that moment, because it's a moment in time, the Big Bang, not a place in space. It's not an explosion in a pre-existing space. It's the beginning of everything. It's the moment before which there were no other moments. And that's the model. And the question is, is that model right? So I, I have two favorite theories, and neither one of them is Roger's favorite theory. So that <laughs> gives us something to talk about. <laughs> the, the one theory that I think is, is very at least on the table, is plausible, is yes, that is the beginning of the universe. And it's because time and space themselves are not fundamental. That when you get deep into the guts of quantum mechanics, you realize that all the stuff around us, the tables, the chairs, space itself, time itself, are emergent, approximate phenomena. They're like talking about the air as a fluid with a temperature and a pressure rather than talking about the molecules. Maybe even time it's just a good approximation, and it started 14 billion years ago. That's one possibility that I think is very plausible. The other, if time is truly fundamental, if time is real and there and, and inextricable from the fundamental equations, then I think it's very likely that the Big Bang was not the beginning in that case. But I also think that, as Roger has <coughs> emphasized better than anyone, there's something very profound about the nature of time in our observable universe. Namely, that it has a direction, right? That the past is different from the future. And if we can get into this, I hope, the reason why the past is different from the future in your everyday life, the reason why you remember yesterday and not tomorrow, is ultimately because of what conditions were like at the Big Bang. That's what set up the arrow of time, and that's the fundamental mystery of cosmology. Why was it like that? So my favorite view of that is that there is a much larger universe that we don't see, that our little universe is a tiny little part of the whole picture, and the whole picture is actually symmetric, that there are people <laughs> in our past who think that we are in their past, that time runs in the opposite direction for them as it does for us. This is not by any means set in stone. We don't know it for sure, but this, these are the kinds of scenarios that we're talking about as professional cosmologists to understand why the universe that we do live in looks the way it does. Marvellous. So, uh, <coughs> I hope that's all clear. Time may not be fundamental. There may be people in your future looking at you in their past or something. The other way around. Marvellous. Okay. Um, Roger. <laughs> Are you yeah. going to make it worse or better? Ah, that's a good question. Well, you see, Sean didn't mention the thing that I was really going to disagree about. That there was supposed to be something within the first 10 to the minus 32 seconds. Now, what does that mean? You think of a number, one fraction, 
the bottom, the denominator, is a number which has 32 digits. And that fraction, ridiculously small fraction of a second, the universe was supposed to have expanded far more rapidly than anything that we're aware of now. It's called an exponential expansion, which is supposed to have taken place. And that's called inflation. And it is very much part of conventional cosmology. Now, to me, that's the weak point of conventional cosmology, because you, you have to introduce ideas which there's no other reason for, apart from making it do this. But apart from that, if you go one blip after that, I completely agree with what Sean's saying. So the argument has to be from before that. And I'm claiming that although there was this idea of a steady-state model, which I grew up with, I may say when I was in Cambridge as a graduate student, this was all going on, and Dennis Sharma, who was a good friend of mine, and Bondi and Gold and people I used to know, Fred Hoyle, uh, and they were all dead keen on this idea that the universe went on expanding and expanding, and it didn't change much because new matter was created all the time. Okay, I like that theory because philosophically it meant there was no beginning, and you could talk about the universe in that kind of way. Now, I'm picking up on that in a different way, though. I'm not disagreeing with the Big Bang. There was a Big Bang. I am rather disagreeing that quantum mechanics was important there, and that's a big point of difference, really. The reason that you're allowed to continue before the Big Bang, which is what I'm trying to claim, is because, in a certain sense, I'm agreeing with Sean, that you don't have time. How do we measure time? We have extraordinarily accurate clocks today because these depends now on quantum mechanics, because a particle of mass is really a clock. And this based on the two basic, most famous formulae of 20th century physics, namely Einstein's E equals mc squared, which tells you energy and mass are equivalent, and Max Planck's E equals h nu, or f, whatever you call it, which tells you that energy and frequency are equivalent. Put the two together, that tells you that mass and frequency are equivalent. That tells you that if you have a massive particle, it is a clock of extraordinary precision. Now, the point is when you don't have massive particles, and this would apply to the remote future, when basically the universe is dominated by photons running around either from stars or from black holes. You see, Stephen Hawking, his most famous discovery, if you like, or theoretical discovery, was that black holes are not completely black, or they're not completely cold, that they have a temperature. That temperature is so low that it's much lower than anything you could build in the lab, certainly with the big, biggest black holes. Our galaxy has a black hole in its center, which is about 4 million times the mass of the sun. That's so cold that it puts everything else in the shade. Now, the thing is that according to Hawking, these things eventually will evaporate away because the universe gets colder than the black holes. They evaporate away and disappear. So when those have disappeared, there's nothing left but things which don't have any mass. There's the photons. Basically, that's true. And that they're the only way of, you don't have clocks anymore because you don't have mass. And so the remote future, you have no way of keeping time. And the idea is that this remote future where you have this expansion of the universe, which is becoming exponential expansion, which is what we currently observe, continues forever. Now, I found that a really depressing picture. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me, you know, the universe is pretty exciting now, but then you know, what's this eternity of boredom. But then I thought, who's going to be bored? Not, well, not us because we won't be around. The main things that will be out there were photons. And it's very hard to bore a photon, I'll tell you. Because <laughs> photons, the main reason is probably they don't experience anything, but that's not the point. The main point is that they don't measure time. Photons right up to infinity, and they're still there. And they say, what, what, what have we got to do with the universe? They're still there. 
the idea is that the universe continues with what I call another eon. Our eon started with the Big Bang and ends with this exponential expansion. And there was an eon before. I could go and talk for endlessly with this if you allow me. But, but <laughs> the question is, the Big Bang was not the beginning. There was an eon prior to us, one before that, one before that, etc. And now that <laughs> Roger's got that clear for you, Laura Mercini Houghton. So um, might the Big Bang theory be mistaken? It is not wrong, it's incomplete. It tells us... All we want to know from the moment the universe comes into existence to present day, it agrees exquisitely well with observations, but it creates its own problem of the origin, where it came from. Cosmic inflation uh, gives us this beautiful picture where uh, the large-scale structure in the universe and the cosmic microwave background, basically everything we observe around us, is seeded from those primordial quantum fluctuations and how the whole universe started small and stretched all its uh, non-uniformities as, as uh, cosmic inflation made that universe to accelerate and grow big very quickly. So we have a set of observations. Our uh, Precision cosmologies is a very advanced field by now. So um, all our observations agree perfectly well with this picture of cosmic inflation. It does not mean they prove cosmic inflation. Um, it's uh, conceivable that someone else might come along with a different picture that also agrees with this set of observations. However, we are happy because here is a theory that tells us everything from the first fraction of a second to present day. And we know our universe started small and it's growing. But that picture does not tell us what gave that first energy and right. what was there before and what lies beyond. Our universe is uh, about 10 to the power 27 centimeters, the visible universe, and it's only 13.8 billion years old. These are big numbers, but, but they are not inconceivably big. So we, all of us have the right to ask what was there 13.9 billion years ago, <laughs> or what was there at uh, what's beyond 10 to the power 27 centimeters. Okay, so um, we've got a great story, but we're missing the first paragraph in this story. That, that bit got torn off. So you've got a great story from then on, but you don't know what happened right at the beginning, the yeah. first page. Um, well, then our, our first question really is, um, do we have to have a beginning? I mean, it, it's nice to have one. All stories start with once upon a time. Um, or, and do we need one? Do, do we need a first cause? Or are some scientists happy that we don't have one? And is our preference for having a beginning because you lot have inherited the, that sort of myth structure from, from Christianity? I mean, I, I don't think the, the Indians are too worried about this. So, um, Roger, do you think we, um, we, we have to have a beginning? Or is it just a an article of faith? Well, currently, I, my scheme does not have a beginning. No, there's not a beginning. But the beginning that, that, that we think of as the Big Bang was the continuation of something which didn't look like a Big Bang, but it was a previously expanding, what I call an eon. And these went on, as far as the theory goes, indefinitely. So there was no beginning in this scheme. Of course, that might, might not be right. But I think there are some observations, very recent observations, which I don't see how you can explain on the basis of current inflationary theory. And I rather disagree about inflation being a nice, beautiful theory. It's a very artificial theory where you have to introduce concepts which are invented specifically for the theory. They don't come from anything else. 
Mm. Well, just before we get on to that, mm. when you say an eon, have I got the right picture that basically you're saying <laughs> before our universe, our current, what we're before in, there was one language, before yes. it, yes. and it, it sort of came to an end, and then there was another one. Well, you see, it doesn't come to one. the end. You see, what? it's an old idea that the universe expanded and then collapsed again. So we're, we're dispensing with beginnings and endings. Well, if you like. Uh, let, let me just go back to the old idea. You see, this was one of the very old, um, originally, right after Einstein produced his theory, Friedman solved the equations, and one of the solutions was a universe which expanded and collapsed like that, and it went through these phases. Now, this is very different because it never collapses, and that's what people have trouble swallowing. You see, how can this universe, which is expanding, getting rarefied, cold, and all that, become this big bang, which is very hot and compressed, and they look completely different? Mm. But they're not completely different if you don't have mass, because it's a funny idea, but in this model, when you don't have clocks around, which you don't when you don't have mass, then big and small become equivalent. It's what you call conformal equivalent. Large things and small things, you can't tell them apart if you don't have a scale, which tells the difference. And the scale gets lost when you don't have particles with mass. And so when that scale is lost, this expanding, indefinitely expanding universe becomes a big bang of the next... Even theory. though it was very large once upon a time. Yes. But when you, you see, lose track of what large means. When you've only got photons running around, there's no meaning to saying it's large or small. The equations become identical. I agree it's a hard, hard idea to swallow. And uh, it, it's, it's not... <laughs> Thank you, Roger. It's, it's not... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, absolutely. Are either of you two willing to swallow this idea, or would you rather... You, you look like you, you want to say something... No. <laughs> uh, I agree with almost everything Roger said. It, uh, <laughs> um, in terms of uh, your question, um, can we do with a universe that didn't have a beginning? Certainly we can, but we observe that that's not the case with our universe. We know our universe at the beginning, so we don't get to have a choice on that. And uh, in terms of uh, the theory of cosmic inflation explaining many of the features we observe in our universe. I, I did state before that it's a beautiful and natural theory. <laughs> That's true, except that it has a very, very unnatural feature, which is the one that uh, Roger pointed out in the 70s, I believe, that the chance of starting a universe with uh, high energy inflation is incredibly small. It's 1 to the power 10, and, and we've had this discussion with Roger before, and he corrected me. I said, 10 to the power 10 to the power 122, and he said, no, 123. <laughs> Doesn't make any difference. So that, that makes a huge difference. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. But uh, the, the chance to start with, our universe, with, with a universe like ours seems uh, nearly zero. And, and, and in that sense, yes, I completely agree with Roger that that's a very unnatural beginning to have, a very special beginning to have. But... That argument is, is a consequence of uh, the second law of thermodynamics, right. that um, um, it, we, we can turn it around and, and say our universe started, started at an incredibly small entropy or at an exquisitely ordered state, at a very special state. So always the, the problem of the origin of the universe, whether it's via cosmic inflation or via some other mechanism or, or some other theory, that problem will always be tied up with uh, the issue of uh, the second law of thermodynamics, by which entropy always grows. So whatever beginning we can conceive of, 
in the future, the entropy of that state would have grown. So that beginning would, will always be special relative to some final state. And, and that is the part where I'm not sure I agree with Roger any further. Um, I, I like his, uh, his theory of uh, eons and, and cycles in the universe, but I, I have not thought carefully on how that evades the second law of thermodynamics, whether you can have such a theory, whether you don't lose information in each cycle. No, I think it's an absolutely key point. You're, you're absolutely right. And uh, the answer to it, according to my scheme, uh, goes lands us in another one of these big controversies. It has to do with black holes. See, the entropy in our universe right now is almost utterly dominated by black holes. And so what happens to those black holes? Well, they evaporate away by Hawking evaporation. And then you have to take a, a view which is not so normal. See, people tend to think that somehow the information has got to come back out of black holes. But I say, no, this is, there were two Hawkings. <laughs> the Hawking who put forward this theory first about black hole evaporation, who said information was lost. There's the second Hawking who changed his mind and said, no, information somehow got to back again. I think he was right the first time. He was right the first time information is lost, and it's because the information is lost that you allow all that information and the entropy that is, is involved in that, and you start again by, with what's left. And that's how you satisfy the second law. So it, it does make sense. As far as I know, the scheme I'm proposing is the only one I know of, at least, which you get this very uniform, gravitation-free, as I say, degrees of freedom in the gravity, gravitational field, not there, in the next eon. So it starts clean all over again. Uh, and it makes sense with the second law. And I don't know of any other scheme which does that. Well, let's ask Sean. Yes. Okay, maybe he's got one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, so I actually do have a scheme oh. uh, that could compete with that. Okay. So I could talk about that, or we could back up a little bit, because you still have this... Well, I'm just... Do you think we need a beginning? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you sort of, like, opened a little bit of a door to saying, you know, do, do, does the universe need a creator? So we, we have a whole bunch of different scenarios for the very, very long-scale evolution of the universe, some of which are eternal. Time goes from minus infinity to plus infinity. Some of which are finite. The universe has not only a beginning but an end. And some of which are halfway, right? The universe has a beginning but not an end. And then, In fact, that last one, even though it's the weirdest, is kind of the running, working model for most uh, respectable cosmologists today. And uh, so you can ask in the context of any of these, what else is there to be explained other than what the universe is doing, right? There's a sense in which there's a, a philosophy which I don't necessarily agree with, but you can say science says what the universe does. It doesn't say why the universe does those things. So in particular, you might think that there's a very big difference in the explanatory burden if the universe has a beginning versus when it doesn't. If you were Isaac Newton, if you believed in classical mechanics, the universe just lasts forever, right? Time is absolute and it just goes on forever. Newton actually was a little bit worried about the implications of that. Newton thought that God would come in and rearrange the planets occasionally because otherwise they would, they would run off. And later Pierre Simon Laplace made fun of him for that loss of courage and just believing the universe could run all by itself. But then once general relativity comes along with Einstein, you can show that if the universe is full of stuff, it's either expanding or contracting. So there was probably a crunch or a bang, right? There was a beginning or an end. And one of the first people to take this seriously was a, a priest, Georges Lemaitre. 
And he developed this theory of the primeval atom, which we would now call the Big Bang. And he said, you know, several billion years ago, everything was on top of everything else. Maybe the universe contra Newton had a start, right? And you know who loved this idea was the Pope. <laughs> the Pope said, all right, good, I'm going to put you on a commission and you can write a paper that science has proven that God created the universe now, right? And Lemaitre said, no, I, I do not want to do that. I don't want to, because Lemaitre was a smart cookie. And he, you know, he knew, this is the 1920s, he knew, like, you know, we don't have the final answer now. We can't write a document that says, proof that God created the universe because it had a beginning, because some smart cosmologist is going to come along and say, it doesn't have a beginning, right? Someday in the future. So, but nevertheless, there's this thought that if the universe is eternal, it could be self-sustaining. It could just be self-contained and all by itself, whereas if it had a beginning, there needs to be a cause for its creation. And I would say that even then, that's not right. This is one of the wonderful uh, consequences of this way of thinking about the intersection of quantum mechanics and gravity that Stephen Hawking and others have pursued, is that even a universe with a beginning can be fully self-contained. That the description of the universe, just because it has a first <coughs> moment in time, does not require anything outside to push the button and get it started. You shouldn't think of, even if the Big Bang is the beginning, let me just say parenthetically, all these different scenarios we're talking about are unlikely to be true. Okay? Because <laughs> we don't know the right answer. Not Roger's scenario, my scenario, Laura's scenario, none of these have a better than 10% chance each of being Speak the correct yourself. final answer. I am speaking for <laughs> all of us. <laughs> we should be humble about this, right? So if it does turn out to be true that the universe had a beginning, uh, you shouldn't think of it as there was nothingness and then the universe popped into existence. It's very hard to not think of that way because the flow of time is embedded in how we think about the world. And you think about, well, if there was the Big Bang, then it came from nothingness. But there wasn't a nothingness that turned into the Big Bang. That's the wrong way of thinking. Think about it from the other side. There was a first moment of time in the history of the universe. And just because there was that doesn't mean there was some reason why it happened. So it's, it's reasonless at the bottom. That's right. You know, I would, I would, sadly, I would have, you know, Roger mentioned the disappointing idea that the universe will last for infinity years in the future and we'll all be dead. It's also kind of disappointing to say, well, why did the universe exist at all? And the answer is it just did. Stop asking questions <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. See, you're disappointed. I, I predicted. I, yeah, I am disappointed. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Um, are there alternatives to the Big Bang that we should consider? I mean, does the multiverse help and does eons help or are we just left with the same problem? Picking up where Sean left, 
the origin of the universe question, whether it had a beginning or, or not, is uh, very closely related to another fundamental problem, and one that's even harder, and that's the nature of time. Because we, we are so liberally waving our hands and speaking of time before the Big Bang and, and time after this and after and before that, but we don't know whether time is fundamental or it emerged with the universe itself. So un unless we have a better understanding of, of that issue, um, probing what was there before, the Big Bang does not make sense. Do we need a uh, multiverse? I, I believe so for many reasons. Um, the first one being we know by observations that our local universe did have a beginning, so that that immediately um, implies that there is something else beyond its edge and, and before that particular beginning, if with the caveat that, that time exists before our universe did. So in, in that case, of course, it's, um, it's, it's hard to, to believe in, in a uh, cosmos with, with an eternal time, with a fundamental time parameter, that the only thing that ever happened for eternity was just one pop, our universe and nothing else. So it, it's quite natural that one would expect many structures to, to exist beyond the structure of our universe. And, and that is a uh, extension of the Copernican principle. We are simply saying, um, not long ago we thought uh, Planet Earth is the center of the universe, and then the solar system. And now we are saying even our local universe is not the center of the cosmos. We are just one humble member somewhere in, in a vast, beautiful, and complex cosmos. So that, that to me, makes sense. Uh, the, the other reason why I, um, over a decade ago, um, took this idea of the multiverse seriously is because whenever you, you probe these questions, of the origins. Why did we start with this universe? The kind of question that Roger asked when he calculated the probability to start with such a universe. That question does not make sense if you don't have an ensemble, a pool of possibilities from what, uh, which to choose from. If all I, all I have in my pocket is, I don't know, 10 pounds, then it does not make sense for me to ask what's, what's the probability that if I put my hand in my pocket, uh, I'll pull some other knot that is not 10 pounds. Of course, there is a 100% probability that the only thing that will come out is 10 pounds and nothing else. And, and uh, the, the same with the universe. If you insist that we must have only one universe, then um, I, I do not see how the question, why did we start with this universe, can make sense. And, and that, if you dig deeper, um, that, that really boils down to two very uh, fundamentally different approaches to, to the nature of our universe in theoretical physics. One is the approach of the theory of everything, a single universe, an underlying theory that, of course, ideally you can write on a t-shirt, but uh, an underlying theory that tells you absolutely everything you need to know about this universe. That's one way, and, and since I'm the um, alternative approach, is the multiverse, the possibility that the cosmos is, is more complex, more, um, there are more structures be, uh, besides our universe. And, and uh, depending, and, and the second, the, the latter, also allows for an indeterministic universe, one uh, that is based on, on probabilities. And, and uh, the first one is, is based on a deterministic universe. So these two very different tastes to physics also determine the kind of one universe uh, versus many universes approach. But whichever way people go, I mean, uh, eventually we'll all be forced, as, as we solve one problem after another after another, we'll all be forced to, to merge into one point of view. And, uh, and, and hopefully that will happen soon. Um, Roger, isn't the multiverse enough? Why do we need eons as well? 
Well, let me make clear about the distinction here. You see, when people say multiverse, you're thinking in what you might call parallel. You think of them all stacked up next to each other. But the point of view that I'm putting forward is a sequential. So they're one after the other. And they're really very different. Now, there are reasons that some people put forward which are worth taking seriously, that there might be parallel universes. And these have to do with apparently coincidental constants of nature and so on, which allow life as we know it to come about. Now, I think these are arguments one is look at and take seriously. I don't get completely persuaded by them because it more or less tells you that life as we know it couldn't come about unless these numbers were right. But if these numbers had different values, maybe a different, completely different kind of life that we have no experience of. And here's where science fiction is very useful. I mean, there's a lovely book by Robert Forward which describes life on a neutron star. And there, processes go on millions and millions of times faster than ours. It's a wonderful story because you have to relate human timescales to the, to the timescales of the chelas, which are these creatures. And I think it's a wonderful exploration of how life could be so very different from what we know. But maybe these numbers could be very different and we'd still get a kind of life. So I'm not sure whether I'm very persuaded by those arguments. It's, it's an interesting question, and I think worth considering. But Do you need to have these parallel universes, or don't we? Maybe I'm confused, but yes. even if there were parallel universes, in your theory, would they all have eons in each one? Well, I don't have the parallel ones anyway, you see. <laughs> so he has them side by side. I just have the eons, yes. Right. Just but but why do you ones. want the eons and not parallel universes? Because the parallel ones don't solve the, the, the problem that you just why mentioned. Why do you keep pointing at me? The point you just mentioned about the probabilities. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, you have this 10 to the 10 to the 124. I mean, that, you 23. The, 23. No, no. <laughs> that doesn't take into account dark, dark matter. <laughs> that's why it's 124. <laughs> no, that, that's right. I used to say 123, but then dark matter became convincingly present. But can can I universe. make a point about yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the arguments at, about uh, the existence of life and, and the fine-tuning of the, of the constants of nature such yeah. that life arises as we know it in our universe, even that argument is, is, is not correct. Uh, there, there is a lot of work done. I, I've looked at some of those with... with collaborators, Fred Adams and, and uh, uh, Stefan Alexander, where we showed that you can vary the fine structure constant responsible for electromagnetic interactions and, and Newton's constant by six orders of magnitude and still get life as we know it. In we, fact, and, and still get life as we know it. In, in, in fact, uh, our well, universe, the, the <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the kind of values that, that uh, these constants take in our universe make our universe not right at the center of, of the most favorable region for life to arise. Mm -hmm. We are somewhere in the corner. So the arguments that, that uh, we have fine-tuning and the there is one universe, or, or there is a, a new trend now on, as, as the multiverse research has taken off, there is a new trend of uh, um, anthropic dressing of the multiverse, saying, oh, well, if you have so many possible universes um, in, in this multiverse, then the, the one we really care about is the one that allows life, and, and that's uh, mm -hmm. uh, because then we can witness it. But now that we know that you don't need to fine-tune, the, the uh, constants of nature. Life can arise in, in many. Well, I'm very glad to hear it because I don't. I just never liked the argument too much. <laughs> I, I, I really dislike the anthropic principle, which was one of the reasons yeah. I, I looked at this. But, uh, it, but you would still need a beginning in the multiverse. I mean, 
each uh, of those or the uni- multiverse no well each of those universes have have a beginning um, yeah each, each of them but you have right. an infinite number of them right but and and they are not parallel either. Uh, parallel universes refer specifically yeah. to something that, that Sean writes a lot about, uh, and that's the Everett interpretation the, the, of quantum mechanics. The many worlds of quantum mechanics. So right. that, that's a very specific mm-hmm. type I, of multiverse. I think we've got enough universes already. Do, we, do you agree that we don't need a beginning with the universe? Because you, you admitted there was a little, you know, like, the man's. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, the, the conventional story is that there's a man on the floor and he's dead, but we didn't actually see what happened. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't need a beginning. Uh, need being the operative word there. It may be that the Big Bang was a beginning, uh, as Roger has emphasized for many years now. The observed fact is that our early universe is very, very special. If you took all the different ways you could arrange all the photons and particles of matter in the universe. The one that we actually have for the, our observed Big Bang is extraordinarily unlikely. That's these 10 to the 10 to the 120-something uh, <laughs> unlikely. And so either that was a tremendous accident and we got lucky, nobody believes that, or there's a reason why. That's something that does uh, de- seem to demand a reason why. Maybe it's because it was the best, it was the simplest, right? Um, Roger has the idea of the cycles and the eons is, is another one. Um, so let me, let me actually try to defend this idea of inflation that has been remarked upon a couple times. Inflation seems like a cheat vis-a-vis this particular problem because the problem is why is the universe so unlikely? Inflation is a theory where you start in a particular kind of state and then it expands and cools and very naturally becomes the universe that we see. But that place you started, as Laura already said, is even more unlikely. So that doesn't seem to help. The reason why it might help is because even though it's unlikely in this sort of sense of all the possible ways the universe could start, it is maybe makeable in a way that the ordinary universe is not. If you see the universe that is all around us with uh, two trillion galaxies in the observable universe, and you wind that clock backwards until you hit the point at which quantum gravity is unavoidable, right? The, the closest thing we can come to the beginning of the universe, and you don't believe in inflation, everything we see around us was this big. It was about one centimeter across. You might think, if you're not a highly trained professional cosmologist, that's very small. Yep. (laughs) But if you are a highly trained professional cosmologist, you're like, that's huge. Because you're comparing it to subatomic scales, the size of atoms and particles. So you needed a universe that was perfectly smooth and regular across a centimeter when all the particles that we know about are much, much, much smaller than that. What inflation lets you do is start the universe much, much, much smaller than that. So if you have a theory for how universes are created, such as my favorite theory of baby universes, where you start with a big empty universe and there's a quantum fluctuation that bubbles off, a little bubble of space that grows into our universe, the little bubble of space that you make is much more likely to be small than to be big. And if you want to start with a small universe and make a big one like ours, inflation does a very good job. So I think that there can be a role for inflation. Whether or not it's true, I'm not sure. 10%, right? But nevertheless, it does serve an obvious purpose that we might like to take advantage of in understanding why we started from someplace very special and got the universe we see. Well, now that we've cleared all that up, (laughs) um, sadly, we are fundamentally out of time. Um, And we can't run it backwards or get it from any other universe, I'm afraid. 
Um, so really all that remains is for me to ask you to join me in thanking our panellists. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Tune in next week to listen to Stephen Pinker, Tariq Ali and Alif Sarikan grapple with the forces of history and debate whether ideas or force should drive social progress. We always love to hear from our listeners here at the Institute of Arts and Ideas, and so please keep sending in your thoughts and comments on what you'd like to hear from us. We love making this podcast for you, so please rate, share, and of course subscribe today, and get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, or via our website at TV. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.